Good evening. If you could, you can turn your Bible, if you have it with you, to Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Matthew 4, 1 through 11. And while you're doing that, I'll pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the word preached to us this morning. And Lord, I pray that you would help by your Holy Spirit preach me, preach it again right now to this, these people, this congregation. Lord, we thank you for the rain, that it reminds us that you are merciful to the just and the unjust alike, Lord, that we are in need of mercy. We can't deserve it, and you are perfect and merciful, Lord. And I pray that you would strengthen me to proclaim your son's name for the benefit of those here. In Jesus' name, amen. Anyone who knows me very well, uh, it becomes obvious pretty quick that I'm not the biggest fan of sports. I don't really like them very much. Not that I have anything against anyone who does like sports. I just have no interest whatsoever. So when Sunday comes, I always hear people talking about the game that happened Saturday. I have no idea what you're talking about. I, I don't know what sport you're talking about. I have no idea what, what is going on. Um, not, and nothing wrong with that. I don't know very much about sports. It just doesn't interest me. I don't know if March Madness is still going on right now. I have no idea who won or who didn't or who's in it or who's not. I have no idea. I don't know who won the Super Bowl or who was in the Super Bowl even. So if I do know something about sports, it's usually something that was big, something worth knowing. So I can, I can name LeBron James and a few other, like Tom Brady and Peyton Manning. I can't name much more than that, uh, athletes. But one sport I especially don't care for is UFC and MMA. <laughs> I don't like how just people punching each other in a ring does not uh, appeal to me whatsoever. But there's only one person in the, at UFC I've ever known, one fighter, and it's a woman fighter, Ronda Rousey. And a few years ago, she was all over the place, I remember. There would be commercials. She was even in movies. She was undefeated, the first uh, UFC women's champion who had an undefeated streak of 12 to 0. Her matches averaged less than three minutes, which was less than any other weight class, male or female. She made $1,000 for every second she was in the octagon. She was all over the place. She was on ESPN's top 25 athletes and all these other things. So that's the only reason I knew anything about her was because she was undefeated, that no one could apparently, no other woman could beat her, until they did, of course. In 2015, she fought uh, Holly Holm and was knocked out at the beginning of the second round by a high kick to the face. Her undefeated reign ended there. It turned out, and that's when I stopped hearing about her too. She was only famous because she was undefeated. And then I haven't heard anything about her. I think most people haven't heard anything about her since. She later, a year later, went back to the UFC, but got knocked out in 48 seconds. She became a washout. She later even became, I looked up, became a part of the WWE. And I know enough about sports to know the WWE is a downgrade, to say the least that she's now not doing real sports at all. So she was known for her high, her championship, her undefeated streak. She was a champion, and it all lost, got lost in a second. In today's text, we're going to see another champion lose their streak, someone who had a lot longer uh, undefeated record than 12 to 0, someone whose reign lasted a lot longer than three years. This champion I'm talking about is our great adversary, the devil. Satan, the fallen angel who's made it his singular purpose to damn humanity since the Garden of Eden. 
He seeks to tempt us to sin against our good creator and so that we might, he might accuse us then and, incur, uh, and have us guilty before God, thus bringing us into separation with him, into hell. Our adversary is very good at his job ever since the garden. He got Adam and Eve. He was able to best the likes of Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. And up until this point in redemptive history, he's gone undefeated. No one's been able to withstand his temptations. Every single man, woman, has fallen into sin in one way or another. But God, at, the, at Satan's very first victory, God made a promise that in Genesis 3.15, that Satan's head would one day be crushed. But in the thousands of years of Old Testament history, it seems like this promise never comes to fruition. We see men who seem like this is going to be the one, like Solomon, like David, but then it all falls apart. They give in to temptation. And and now in tonight's text, we are going to see the triumphant uh, Savior end Satan's streak once and for all, not by kicking him in the face, but rather by being the true obedient son that we were all supposed to be. The story of Jesus' temptations are not just there so we can put some ash on our forehead and give up something for Lent for 40 days, nor is it there merely to be an example of, our temptation, uh, of how to withstand temptations and sin. No, rather, Matthew tells us this story so that we may be able to see and wonder what the grounds and hope of our salvation is. Matthew 4, 1 through 11 shows us that the only hope we have to stand before God and count it as righteous in his sight is Jesus and what he does for us. In this passage, we see Jesus' triumph where we have all failed, where Adam has failed, where Noah has failed, where Abraham has failed, where Moses has failed, where David has failed, where I have failed and where you have failed. Jesus Christ has triumphed. The main point of tonight's passage is that Jesus Christ is the righteous Son of God who remains obedient for us and for our salvation. And that's, we'll read the first two verses, one through two. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, to first understand the temptation narratives, we have to understand what became before. Context is always important. That Every single gospel that has a temptation, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it always chronologically pairs it with Jesus' baptism, and that's significant, because Jesus' baptism gives us the context in which we should understand what's happening in this temptation. Why is it happening to begin with? And what happens at Jesus' baptism? Jesus, to fulfill all righteousness, is baptized, and the Father sends the Holy Spirit to descend upon him, showing he's the spirit, the servant of the Lord prophesied in Isaiah, And he makes this declaration of him. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus is declared to be God's son. And that's going to be important for uh, Satan's temptations. It's going to be central because Satan, you're going to see, is going to bring up that sonship twice. He's going to say, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God. So if we are going to understand what Satan's getting at and what the text is getting at, we have to understand what son of God fully means. I think most of us rightly understand that Son of God tells us about Jesus' divinity, that he is fully God, truly God. He's the second person of the Trinity. He is forever consubstantial with the Father, equal in glory and power with the Holy Spirit. But the Son of God means more than that, not less than that, but more than that. Especially if you know the Bible very well, the Old Testament, the Son of God language is used often to refer to special and particular people in a variety of places. First off, Son of God refers to Adam, 
the head of the human race. Luke 3.38 plainly says that Adam was the son of God. Now, it's not saying Adam is the second person of the Trinity, but he is a son of God. He is his representative. He's an image. Image and sonship are very closely related in the Bible. And we see that when uh, in Genesis itself, when Adam has his uh, third son, Seth, it says this, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son, and in his own likeness, after his own image, and he named him Seth. So we see Adam has a child, and he's using the same words that God used uh, to describe image and likeness, sonship and image. Adam was the head of the human race, meant to have dominion, to be God's representative, representative to creation. And then we also see son of God language used for Israel, the whole nation of Israel. In Exodus 4, to 23, God says this to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say, let my son go that he may serve me. Hosea 11.1, 1, recounting the Exodus, says, out of, is- out of Egypt I have called my son, referring first to Israel. So Israel's also called God's son because it's a special nation used to represent and bless the nations uh, for God. And then lastly, we have David and his offspring designated as son. Psalm 2 says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. In God's covenant, if we remember from last year, with David in 2 Samuel 7, he says this about David's offspring. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Adam, Israel, and David are all designed as sons of God because they represent people who God has made special covenants with and are means of blessing the world. So Adam has what theologians call the covenant of works where he was to obey God and have dominion and secure blessing for all the world. But if he didn't, curse happened, death. And that's what happened. He represented all of us when he fell. Israel, likewise, had a special covenant with God through Moses, where they were given the law that if they were to obey, the blessings of new creation would be coming, that there would be, uh, the land would be flowing in milk and honey, that the nations would come in and see what God is doing but they failed. David likewise had a covenant in his offspring saying, if you obey and keep my commandments, your offspring will remain forever before me and your kingdom will last forever and there will be peace. But David's offspring failed. The kingdom split apart and and both kingdoms got exiled. So when God declares Jesus to be the beloved son at his baptism, He is declaring to the world that there is a new hope for humanity, a new hope for salvation, a new man who will stand firm where all others have fallen. And in Matthew 4, 1 through 11, we are going to see if Jesus really lives up to that declaration. With Jesus, will Jesus be the obedient son of God where all past sons have failed? And that's where we're going to see that. So that's why the Holy Spirit leads uh, Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted That's what the text said. It's for that very purpose that he uh, is going to redo all the past uh, failures. Israel had failed in the wilderness. That's where they were tempted. The wilderness is a place of tempting and exile, or testing and exile, according to the Bible. That it is a place where Israel was in the wandering. It's the place where people are cast off. It's not wilderness as in like a jungle, but a wilderness as in a desert. It's outside the garden, outside of... Uh, the good things that God's made. 
where the curses are. And Jesus is taken out into there, and he fasts 40 days and 40 nights, and that's to remind us of Israel. Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years, that that was their time of testing. Jesus is showing to be the new Israel, the new David, the new Adam that's going to undo all their past failures, who's going to prevail over them. So this is where the context of the temptations, that Jesus is going to be the tempted son of God, but hopefully, and he is, going to uh, secure our salvation. And it says after 40 days, he was hungry. So that's also something important because Satan's going to use that. But that shows us something very important, that Jesus is truly God and truly man. He has real hunger. So the temptations he's going to face aren't just illusions, that he's uh, just a phantom uh, pretending to be hungry. No, he has real hunger, a real stomach, a real soul, a real body, a human body for us and for our salvation. So when we need someone to be obedient in our place, and it's got to be a man just like us, and in Jesus we have that, someone who's truly God and truly man, a man who's going to have real obedience for us, who's like us in every way except sin. And that's where this tempter comes in verses 3 to 4. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Satan is here coming to tempt, him, coming to tempt Jesus. After 40 long days, he hasn't eaten in a month, over a month. He is alone. He's by himself. He's tired. And this is when Satan comes. He strikes when Jesus is seemingly the most vulnerable. And he tells them, he tempts them, at first it seems like not, not a very harmful temptation. He's not telling Jesus to kill anyone or to commit an adultery or an affair. He just simply tells them to turn a, a rock into bread. This seems to a, an unspiritual eye to not be anything that crazy, to not be actually kind of innocent. But our Lord uh, sees through that. He doesn't give in for a moment. And Jesus has the power, definitely does have the power to do what Satan says. He is the Son of God. And that's how we have to understand what does Satan mean by if you are the Son of God? Is he trying to make Jesus like question himself whether if he really is the Son of God? I don't think so. Jesus, there's no indication in Scripture that Jesus ever doubted who he was and what he was supposed to be. Jesus was the faithful servant. He took God at his word. And God just told him that. So I think what Satan's getting at is not trying to make Jesus question whether he's the Son of God, but try to make him use his authority as Son of God in a wrong way, to skip the suffering and the commands that God has laid out for him. So one way you can translate it is, if you are the Son of God, then turn the, the stone into bread. So that's what he's getting at here. He's trying to get Jesus to change, use his authority to bypass God's command and provision. And that's what actually is going on here. Jesus, it's not just a simply a matter of survival, that Satan's just saying, come eat, you're hungry. No, it's more than that. And Jesus is not just being a self-righteous monk who thinks it's godly to whip himself or sleep on a cold floor. No, Jesus is here because the Father led him by the Spirit to be out here. He is without food because God hasn't given him food. It was God who put Jesus into this situation without food in a desert to fast. Jesus is being tempted by the devil to distrust God's provision. 
Jesus, what Satan is getting out here is unbelief. He's trying to make Jesus question God's provision for him. God sent him out here, and he's trying to make him seem like God's forgotten about you. It's been 40 long days, and God has not brought any food to Jesus. And Satan's trying to get Jesus to think God's not coming. He's forgotten about you, and you need to take on your own initiative and eat before you die. God's not coming. But no, that's not, our Savior does not give him that. But this kind of unbelief, Satan has gotten very successful in the past. The whole garden, Adam and Eve fell into this kind of unbelief. They were so blinded. They thought God was forgetting about them. They thought God was holding out on them. They couldn't see the garden of trees behind that one tree that God uh, forbid them. They wanted that tree. God gave them thousands of trees to eat from, but they couldn't see past that there was something about this tree that's special, that this one has good-looking uh, fruit, that this one has, can make you wise. But they uh, misunderstood that God wasn't holding out on them. They distrusted God. They distrusted his goodness, his promises, and they fell as sons of, uh, Adam fell as a son of God. And also Israel, which is most easily seen in this, Israel, when they were in the wilderness, one of the first things they complain about is we need food. Like the God who promised he was going to give them a land flowing with milk and honey forgot to pack a lunch on the way. That he really was going to let them die in the wilderness. They always say things like this if you read Exodus and Numbers. Did did the Lord bring us out here to die? Did the Lord bring us out here because there was too much food in Egypt? Did the Lord bring us out here because there wasn't enough graves? They kept questioning like the God didn't know what he was doing. And we do that too. We are so prone to grumble and complain. We are all grumblers by nature due to sin. We grumble when we don't get our food when we want it. We grumble when we don't get that job. We grumble when that, this pandemic has ruined all of our plans. We are prone to grumble when we don't get what we want when we want it. And we grumble because ultimately it's a confession when we complain and grumble that God doesn't know what he's doing. And that's... Uh, So that's what we are confessing. And if I were in Jesus' place, I would have probably been complaining after I missed the first meal. But we see nothing about Jesus. Jesus has gone over a month without eating. And he doesn't grumble. He doesn't complain. Our Lord is not a grumbler. He is not a complainer. He stays fast to God's word. And he answers back to Satan, quoting Deuteronomy 8.3. Man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is where Jesus is finding his trust. Even when it seems he's gone 40 days without eating, there seems to be no provision. He's going to trust God at his word. And now he's not saying that somehow memorizing Bible verses is going to mean you don't have to eat. No, he's saying he's holding on to God's promises. Where does Jesus find his hope and faith is in God's word. Jesus is not going to give in to Satan because he knows God's word. He knows that it promises that I'll never leave you or forsake you. He knows God's word to him at his baptism, that he is God's beloved son. He's not going to give in to that because that's where he trusts. The word of God is his trust, and he uses the sword of the spirit to destroy the temptation. He's not going to give in to the idea that God is going to let him starve because he knows his Bible. Jesus is not going to settle for some nasty old rock bread because he knows the Father's angels are coming to, for him any moment now. They're, and we know that at the end of the verse. The angels are coming. God is going to do something. But Jesus, even before it happens, knows his promises. He trusts his Father. 
Finally, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, where Adam had failed, where uh, Israel has failed, where David has failed, where we have failed, we have a man here, finally, who takes God at his word, who trusts him. And for us and our, for our salvation, in our place, believes and trusts God for us against Satan. And where we have failed, Jesus, the Son of God, has prevailed over unbelief. And that's how he overcame the first, uh, first temptation of unbelief, through his faithfulness. And that's where we go to the second temptation. Then, in verses 5 through 7, Then the devil, t- a devil took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike against a stone." Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. With Christ's triumph over unbelief, Satan fights back with another, trans- uh, another temptation by transporting him to, uh, from the desert to Jerusalem. And he even has Bible uh, with, with him this time. He, he brings scripture with him. The Bible is the word of God and is the greatest treasure we have. But it is very dangerous in the hands of evil men. Arians, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, and the Pope all claim to have the Bible on their side, but they always take it out of context or don't give its full sense, and that's what Satan is doing here. He is right, I believe, Satan is right that this verse does apply to the Lord Jesus, that he is God's holy one who God promises to protect, but rather this passage is promising provision and rescue, not intentional showiness. Satan wants Jesus to throw himself down to make a spectacle of God's promises. What Satan is getting at here is the sin of presumption, that somehow, that because God's promises, he can uh, just show off God's promises and just bank on God doing whatever he wants because that's what Jesus wants, rather than the other way around, respecting God on his timetable. Because Jesus here could, he's in Jerusalem, The Jewish establishment are here. The people who will eventually crucify him, his greatest enemies. He could jump off, be saved by angels, and thus definitively prove to everyone he was who he says he is. And the crucifixion doesn't necessarily have to happen after that. Satan is tempting Jesus to frivolously presume on God's promises and put the Lord God to the test. And is Jesus going to make a spectacle of himself, or is he going to be the humble servant, suffering servant, that his father has called him to be. The past sons of God have all failed in regards to sinful presumption. Adam and Eve believed Satan's lie. They said, Satan said, you won't die, even though God said you will, you will die. They presumed that they would somehow get an excuse, and thus they sinned. Israel's entire history is filled with testing God and presumption. The whole wilderness wandering is summed up in Psalm 95, 9, by God, as when your fathers put me in the test in the wilderness. Israel and 1 Samuel, we saw when we went through it, they thought they could just presume that if they had a box, an Ark of the Covenant, that they could just take it wherever they wanted and somehow God would fight their battles for them, regardless of obedience. And then we've been seeing in Jeremiah at nights here that the people thought just because they have a temple and a sacrificial system that they can somehow escape their curse of sin. But that didn't work. And also, I believe, it didn't work for David either. David also fell into presumption. He has to plead for God in Psalm 19, 13. Keep your servant 
from presumptuous sins. And I believe it was presumption that was one of the things that incited uh, David when Satan tempted him in 1 Chronicles 21 to number the people of Israel. He thought since he was the king, he didn't have to inquire about God or do it God's way. He could just do it because he was the king. We also sin by our irreverence towards God and his word when we sin intentionally while thinking it's no big deal since somehow we think God is obliged to forgive us. When we think we can do this or that sin because God will just forgive us later. I've had that mindset. I bet many of you have had too. We've all committed the sin of presumption, not taking God seriously, not revering his name. And that's where we have all failed. And when it comes to presumption, up until this point, Satan was undefeated. But praise be to God that our Lord Jesus Christ is not a presumptuous man. Rather, he is a God-fearer, one who reverences his father and refuses to put him to the test in such a pointless spectacle. Our Savior quotes Deuteronomy 6.16, you should not put the Lord your God to a test. The God of Scripture is not one to be tested or toyed with. He is not a cosmic butler or a magician. He is to be feared, submitted, and served, and not made a spectacle of. Jesus is not going to use his authority as son of God or the promises he's been given to force God's hand for his selfish wants. Rather, Jesus is going to submit to God's plan for him, which he will require humble obedience and suffering, not showing this. Praise God we do not have a show-off for a savior. So many of us know leaders or managers or bosses we've had who love to show off their authority, who love to show just how over you they are or how much talented they are, but not so with our Lord. He uses his power and authority within obedience, not for selfish gain. And that's where we have failed. Jesus has prevailed. In Jesus, we have one who truly fears God in our place for us in our salvation. And that brings us to the last temptation in verses 8 through 11. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Finally, it comes to the last temptation. It's, it's an escalation, not only in the amounts of temptation, but also you can see how high the elevation literally changes. We go from the desert to a temple, to a mountain where all the kingdoms can be seen. And finally, Satan tempts Jesus. He tempted him with unbelief and presumption, and he has failed. So he turns to his greatest weapon. That is the temptation of idolatry, to get uh, Jesus worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Notice how each temptation is getting more and more great, and it leads all to this. He shows him all the power in the world, all the kings, where the real power is, the kingdoms of the nations, not only that, their, their glory, the good stuff they have. He shows them the silver, the gold, the armies, the women, and the feasts. They have food, Jesus. And uh, he shows them all of these in a moment and says, you can have it all, all this stuff, all this, which a lot of it isn't bad in and of itself. But if it requires worship of Satan, uh, it's a price to pay. But is it, it can seemingly be a small price to pay. The nations belong to Jesus by right, as, the, uh, as Psalm 2 declares. Jesus, as the Messiah, is owed the nations by God. Not owed, but given the nations by God. But Satan here is offering Jesus the nations in advance. 
a nation, he's offering him the kingdom and authority without the suffering, without the cross, a crown without a cross for exchange. All he asks for is Jesus' worship. Satan is desperately trying to get a hold of Jesus' worship. He is hoping that showing Jesus the glories of the world, that he will make him infatuated with the created rather than the creator, thus giving the most heinous, just giving in to the most heinous of sins, which is idolatry. And Satan's track record, once again, is undefeated when it comes to idolatry. When Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, they listened to a serpent rather than their creator. They wanted to be like God rather than obey him and worship him. Israel, after being left by Moses for a few days, succumbed to making golden calves, and they did it later, too, with the northern kingdom of Israel. I don't, they, had something, they were so desperate for idolatry. In the book of Judges, they would worship a bronze serpent. They would worship uh, Gideon's ephod. They would worship literally anything they could get a hands on, the Baals, those terrible gods of their neighbors. They would try to get, worship anything they could besides God. And David's family did no better. Solomon, the king who seemed like he was going to be the chosen one, the be the one that God has promised, who was bringing the nations in. This king fell because of his uh, many wives. He started making idols all around Israel. And it ended, it ended up leading to Israel's uh, split and eventual exile. The sons of God of the past have always caved into idolatry in some way or another. And so do we. According to Romans 1, the central sin of all humanity is that of idolatry, where we serve the creature rather than the creator. Rather than worshiping the almighty, eternal God of the universe, we foolishly worship stuff. We idolize people, entertainment, lust, food, money. Why is it so easy for us to spend hours on the TV or on our phone, but it seems like it's pulling teeth sometimes to get me to uh, uh, pray for 15 minutes or read God's word? It's because our worship is all messed up. We are blinded about how beautiful this God we worship really is, and we like his gifts rather than the one who gives them. God made us to glorify and enjoy him forever, yet all of us without has failed, have, have failed to do our most basic foundational duty. We have all failed to worship. But praise be to God that our Lord is no idol worshiper. Where we have failed, Jesus has prevailed by worshiping in our place. This is the last straw for Jesus. He commands Satan to leave. He says, be gone, Satan. And he quotes Deuteronomy 6, 13. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus shows himself to be the better Adam, the better Israel, the better David, the better us. He is going to give a, he's not going to give away his worship for anything. Jesus knew his God too well that it was incomprehensible for him to worship anything else. He knew how beautiful and wonderful God it was. It was ridiculous. It was absolutely out of the question to worship anything else. In the person of Jesus Christ, we finally have a man who understands all that God's worth and gives him his due. In the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have a man who actually loves the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, strength, and mind. How did Jesus overcome all these temptations? How did Jesus go through all that suffering? Is because according to Hebrews 12, he looked to the glory that was set before him, the glory of his father, the glory that his father promised him. Jesus did not give an inch to Satan's temptations because he understood what Satan was offering was nothing compared to what his father had promised him. Satan was offering him McDonald's when his father had promised him Ruth's Chris. Our father knew that the Lord what the Lord had promised was too good to settle for anything else. 
Satan had promised him the kingdoms of the nations that just go away. While the Father had promised him to get, if he suffers for us and for our place, he will have all authority over heaven and earth, something far greater. And Jesus prevails. He shows himself. to he, And then just like that, he takes Satan's winning streak is over. He's now a washout. His uh, fangs have been knocked out. Jesus has defeated Satan for us in our place. Where we have failed, Jesus, the Son of God, has prevailed. And that's, we see that vindication where the Father sends the angels, showing that Jesus was successful. And now what's the application? How is this supposed to affect us? Is this supposed to just give us uh, little uh, tips and tricks about how to fight temptation and uh, sin? It does give us that. It does teach us that we are to have Scripture memorized, that Jesus constantly quotes back to Satan God's word. You can't ever have too much Scripture memorized. That is true. He also tells us, I think, the opposite things to fight. When Satan gives us unbelief, we are to hold fast to God's promises. When Satan tempts us to presumption, we hold and revere and fear God instead. When Satan tempts us to idolatry, we worship Jesus does teach us principles, but it's much more than that. This passage gives us so much more. This passage gives us the grounds and hope of our salvation, our hope of dying well, our hope of suffering well, our hope of having a right relationship with God. This passage shows us that we, how we can be counted right in God's sight, because we need works to be saved. Anyone who says we're not saved by works is foolish. Because we are saved by works, brothers and sisters, but not our works, the works of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He worked in our place. He resisted temptation. He worshiped. He believed. He feared in our place for our salvation. Because we need more than our sins forgiven. We can't ever stress too much the cross and resurrection, that Jesus forgave our sins, that he paid our debt. He took the punishment we deserve. But brothers and sisters, we need more than our debt paid. If, our de- if all we have is a paid off debt, we're still damned. We need money. We need righteousness in our account. We need not only not a negative balance, but we need a positive balance. Not Zero isn't going to cut it. And that's where Jesus in his obedience has earned and merited every single blessing of the gospel that we have. I can be assured of my standing right before God on the last day because my Lord Jesus Christ has prevailed where I have failed. He was obedient for my place. This is where we go when Satan tempts us to uh, despair, to look in our own sin because we are more sinful than we could ever imagine. Uh, The theologian Machen on his deathbed uh, he was uh, corresponding with another theologian, and uh, one asked him, how, how, what's keeping you through this? And he said, the active, righteousness, or the active obedience of Christ. There is no hope without it. What does that mean? That means that's Christ's obedience. That's what he did for us. His theologians distinguish between his active and passive obedience. His passive obedience was him taking, dying on the cross, taking our punishment for us, and uh, forgiving our sins, but his active obedience is what he did in his whole life. He not only died for us, he lived for us. He obeyed all of God's commands. And when we trust in Jesus, that hit righteousness is put in our account. It's an exchange. We give, he became this uh, sin for us, but we received the righteousness of God in him. It was an exchange. We not only get our sins forgiven, but we get our 
his righteousness in our account, I can be assured that even all the terrible things I've done, and I've done a lot, and I'm sure many of you have, I know many of you have, that Jesus is greater than that. He is our only firm foundation that we that we can stand before this holy God is because what he has done for us, that he has withstood Satan's temptation. So let us make the gratitude that makes us obedient this week. That, uh, let us give us hope when we have trials, when we have suffering, when we're dying. But also let us bring us hope right now where we are as a body. Our church received devastating news this morning that our faithful and loved pastor is called to be somewhere else. And I'm not going to lie, after hearing it, I, I panicked, uh, thinking about what's going to happen to Fisherville, or how, what's going to happen to the edification, what's going to happen to our spiritual growth, what's going to happen to our giving, what's going to happen to discipleship, are we going to grow anymore? Is, if Pastor Brian leaves, are all the blessings going to just shut off from Fisherville? This passage rebukes those thoughts of, me, of mine. This passage shows that the blessings of God do not come from the merits of my pastor, but the merits of Jesus Christ. If the blessings and salvation of Fisherville rested on the merits of Pastor Brian, then we would be all heading straight for hell. Not that Brian is a super righteous man. I can't think of a single thing against him, but I know he's in the family of Adam. And I know he sinned one way or another, and that one sin is enough to bring us all down. But only Jesus Christ is qualified to be my Savior. Pastor Brian is qualified to be my uh, pastor, more than abundantly qualified. But he's not qualified to be my Savior. And if Fisherville, the merits and blessings are going to come to us based on his merit, if we stay in trusting in him, only Jesus and him alone can be our Savior. Only Jesus Christ held strong against Satan's devices and remained obedient to God in all things. Regardless of who is or who is not our pastor, our endurance, faith, and perseverance are found exclusively in the merits and blood and resurrection of our blessed Lord Jesus Christ. And as a church, let us desperately cling to these truths through all of life and through the sadness that we have. Let us pray. Father, thank you so much for the act of obedience of Christ, for him, for his salvation that he's offered. We did not deserve a thing, but he came down to us, became one of us, all like us in all things except sin. Lord, let us trust in his righteousness, in his death, in his resurrection, for all of our hope, for all of our blessing, and whatever happens, whatever doesn't happen, Lord, let us hold fast to it. Let us be reminded of it. Let us have gratitude for obedience, and let us always run to him when temptation comes our way, because he alone is our hope, and we see that in this passage. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for inspiring this, and I pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.